0: Is on. There we go. Good morning, everybody. I think it's been great in this God and Science series to be able to hear from some of the scientists in our community as they work through these very important issues and be honest about their doubts. So I just very thankful and grateful that they've done that, and we have one more coming hopefully next week. But uh, my name is Sawyer Trapp. I'm our student ministry pastor here at Stapleton Church. Um, If you're new to Stapleton Church, we just want to welcome you. We hope that you feel that you've been welcomed, that you feel loved already, because we want this place to be your favorite part of the week, that you look forward to Sundays and that actually it becomes part of the way that you live your everyday life. So if I haven't met you, I hope to meet you on your way out, and I'm just so glad that you're here. Um, Being our student ministries pastor, I get the opportunity to engage with our middle schoolers and high schoolers on a week-to-week basis at Turbulence, our youth ministry, so if you have a middle schooler or a high school, we'd love to have you come out and um, check us out. It's a lot of fun. Um, if you're interested in serving with teenagers, first off, that's awesome. Bold step for you. It's not a regular person, I would say, that wants to work with teenagers. Um, when I tell people that I work with teenagers, I either get one of two responses and very different responses. The first is that oh, that's so awesome, it's so great that teenagers have somebody to look up to that are being impacted for their faith, that's great, awesome. Or on the other end, they pause and say, wait, you work with teenagers? You actively choose to spend your time with members of Generation Z? These, these people that can't even look up from their screen for more than five minutes who struggle to have a face-to-face conversation, who are obsessed with musicians and celebrities. And if we're being honest, probably have some pretty low moral standards, right? Why do you do that, Sawyer? And I just kind of smile and laugh and say, I actually think there's great value in our teenagers. Thank you. Amen. I agree. But I think the truth is, is that as we get older, as we grow up, we have the tendency to look down on younger generations, to forget that we were once young and were working through the same issues that many of our teenagers are today, that we were once obsessed with musicians and celebrities, that we were once struggling to have a conversation face-to-face, and even that we were once struggling with what is right and what is wrong. One observer put the generational difference this way. Generation Z, their, their beauty, their exquisite clothing, their lax habits and low moral standards are becoming unconsciously appropriated by the plastic minds of America's youth. That whatever is portrayed on the screen is imprinted indelibly upon the nation's soul. Telling, and I think maybe representative of Generation Z. But the interesting thing is that this quote is not about Generation Z at all. In fact, it is from 1926, about the new horror and religious uh, evil of movies, of cinema, of going to the movie theater, that that screen was affecting the morality of the youth in 1926. Because that's our tendency, right? Is to forget that we were once young, developing our own sense of right and wrong and trying to find our place in the world. However, if we were ever to bring these concerns to a member of Generation Z, what would happen, and I can tell this from maybe personal experience, is that they would respond with their new favorite catchphrase. Okay, boomer. But the truth is, the truth is, is that we forget in all of this generational difference and finger-pointing and the worlds that we grew up in being dramatically different with new technology, new science, that there's something even more outstanding in that. That despite all those differences, despite different environments and worlds that we grew up in, at some level we all come to a foundational understanding of things that are right and things that are wrong. How is it when we grew up in such different worlds, where in one reality, movies are the new evil, and now we have cell phones and computers in our pockets, how is it that we can still come to a foundational understanding of things that are right and things that are wrong? And that's what we're going to dive into today. Why do we have morals in the first place? Why can we come to these understandings of right and wrong, and what in the world does that have to do with God and science? If you haven't joined us for the past couple weeks, or you missed the message, or you've been traveling, that's okay. We're so glad that you're here today, and definitely, I really encourage you to check out those messages either on our YouTube page or the Stapleton Church podcast, because I don't know about you guys, but for this series, this has been a really awesome and significant series for me and my faith. And if you're new to faith or still trying to figure out what is this Christianity thing all about, I think these messages would be really encouraging and helpful to you. But today, why are we diving in to morality? It seems on the surface to be an odd topic to talk about on a series of God and science. What In the world, does science have to say about morality beyond perhaps the ethics of what can or can't be done in a laboratory? What does science really have to say, or what can science say about what is really right and wrong? Perhaps if you're more of a science focused individual, you're asking a different question. What does religion still have a position to stand on when we, as Christians, often declare something is right and wrong, and then if we're honest, live opposite to that. We speak one truth with one side of our mouth and sometimes live really differently. Does God still have a position of authority when it comes to morality? So I would argue that it's actually really important that we talk about morality in this series. And I think if we really dive in together, This message will not only change our thinking and approach to the world, it could actually change our day-to-day life, the choices that we make, the decisions that we choose to do or things that we decide not to do. So I really encourage you to listen in because I think this is going to be really important. But before we jump in to what God has to say about morality, I think we should give science its fair chance. Because before I studied for this message, I was like, What does science have to say about morality? Can they actually put together a cohesive narrative or understanding about how morality came about? And as I studied and researched and really dived in to what it is all about when it comes to morality from a scientific perspective, they actually put together a pretty decent cohesive narrative. Because if science is to explain the world... The the scientific understanding of the world is that there is only natural things. That the materials that we can see and touch are the only things that exist. There is nothing that is supernatural. And as Matt has talked about through this series, that evolution is the main theory of how the great variety of life has come to be. Plants and animals, even you and I. So then morality must be explained as arriving through natural means Presumably, through the process of evolution. And that's exactly where the argument roots itself. It goes something like this If evolution is the procedure of the world that has brought about the great variety of life, and everything that we see and can touch is all that exists, and we can acknowledge that at some level we do have an understanding of right and wrong, then how can we explain this through naturalistic processes? So the argument goes is that evolution over time, as humans, the earliest humans started to come together into groups, this soon required that they needed ways of living with one another. If you ever have a new roommate, or maybe you've gotten married and are moving in together, or you have a new family member that has joined, that always changes the dynamics, doesn't it? It requires a different set of rules and regulations to determine what is most beneficial for the group no longer just for the individual. And so this is the same case what has taken place for the earliest humans. As they came together in groups and began to have to share resources, work together to solve problems, and figure out what to do when disagreements arise, they needed to develop a sense of right and wrong. And actually, our nervous system, our physiological makeup, is pretty well equipped to make these decisions. Humans have the ability developed over many generations of selection to make pretty quick snap judgments of whether an action is right and wrong. Our nervous system is so equipped actually towards empathy that when people in our group experience pain and struggle, our nerves send the same pain signals as if we were experiencing the pain ourselves. We're well equipped to be social creatures, to live in groups, To work together to figure out what is most helpful for the group, what is right and what is wrong. And in evolutionary framework, what is right and wrong is based in the fundamental motivation of evolution. To do two things. To survive and to reproduce. To live long enough so you can share your genes with the world and last. That what you have brought... What you have learned, what has adapted in your DNA, would be passed on to the next generation. So then what is good is beneficial. It's helpful for us to bring about our survival. Sharing resources. Hunting together. Doing all these things that help promote our survival. And alternatively, what is wrong then is what is counter to our survival. What prevents the ability of life to thrive. And although these ideas seem like they may seem new or coming about through the new science we have of neuroscience and the connection of sociology and biology under the new field of sociobiology, looking at how animals, ants, bees, primates, even how humans function in groups. But the truth is, is that even Charles Darwin... After writing his Origin of Species, laying out his evolutionary theory, began to write texts that followed up that explained how these practically work. And in one of his follow-up books, In the Descent of Man, he had this to say, that any animal whatsoever endowed with well-marked social instincts would inevitably acquire a moral sense or conscience as soon as its intellectual powers have become developed. That as we started to live in groups with one another, as our intellectual powers began to grow and shape to the challenges that we experience and were selected for as being beneficial to our survival, we began to come together to decide what right and wrong is. What is truly helpful to us in our survival and reproduction and what is counter to that. And as we've continued to study and learn about the way that our body works, the way the mind is well equipped to make these decisions, neuroscience has basically said that morality is deeply rooted into the way that our brain works. Uh, popular neuroscientist Abhijit Naskar had this to say, that morality doesn't come to this moral world from some imaginary paradise. It it rises from the neurons of mortal humans to aid in the process of healthy conduct in both personal and social life of those mortal humans. That morality has been ingrained into our biology. Through selection over time, we've seen it valuable to determine together what right and wrong is. And over time and generations and throughout history, we've come together and through our language skills have decided what is right and what is wrong, even codifying them into laws and government, picking leaders for ourselves and creating a justice system that can determine what truly happens in situations of moral conundrums. Science, then, it seems, does put together, at least on the surface, a semi-convincing narrative of how morality has arisen through naturalistic means, that it was beneficial to our survival to determine right and wrong. But as convincing as it may seem on the surface, as we've done throughout this series, we've sought to evaluate theories and see how they apply to our life, to see if the scientific approach to morality is really representative of the way that our world works, those feelings of right and wrong that we all have inside, and can it actually explain how we come to these same understandings on a foundational level of what is right and wrong, despite our generational differences. And I think when we start to do that, some significant problems arise. Problems that are each more troubling and challenging than the last. If you're taking notes this morning, those are the three things that are listed on your bulletin. I was never a note-taker in sermons, but if you are, that's great. And that's why we do it. So the first is this, is that evolution cannot explain altruism. Altruism, if you're familiar, is the idea of acts done towards another person. Good deeds without any benefit towards you. These are giving to the poor without expecting anything in return. These are the best things that we can do as humans. The things that we want to raise up, put on a pedestal, and encourage others to do. This is why we all know who Mother Teresa is. This is why we celebrate her as giving up her comfortable life and going to live in the slums of Calcutta to live with the poorest of the poor so that they can have a better life. Giving every possession she had away. To even the point of her suffering and pain and getting sick. So that others could have a better life. To say that altruistic acts are the best things that we can do. But the truth is, is that they're actually counter to what evolution says should be our primary motivation. To survive and to reproduce. Because if I am doing things that are not beneficial to me that are beneficial to you and not expecting anything in return, then I'm actually hindering my ability to survive and to reproduce. If we give to others outside of our group who share none of our DNA, we're actually helping them survive, that their genes will be passed down instead of our own. It's a challenge. It's frustrating. Because we want to celebrate these things as the best things we can do as humans, but in reality, There are things that we shouldn't even be doing. It's not just me who has come to this conclusion. People much smarter than I have come to the same. As we've talked about Francis Collins in this series, a man who started as agnostic, agnostic, was moved to atheism, but then eventually turned to faith as he worked on the Human Genome Project. Coming to faith through that and actually through this moral argument. He had this to say, that selfless altruism presents a major challenge for the evolutionist. It cannot be accounted for by the drive of individual selfish genes to perpetuate themselves. Quite the contrary, it may lead humans to make sacrifices that lead to great personal suffering, injury, or death without any evidence of benefit. We want to be people who give selflessly to others, but it's counter to evolution. And it's not just people who now claim the name of Jesus who have come to this conclusion. The well-known atheist Richard Dawkins says basically the same thing in his book, The Selfish Gene. Much as we might wish to believe otherwise, universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. Universal love and welfare if you were to ask people on the street if that was a good thing and something we should be promoting, I bet almost 100% of people would say yes. But that is directly counter to the primary motivation of evolution. And if our morality is rooted in adaptions over time, then we're left to say that that might not be the best thing to do. And as problematic as that is, I think as we follow the conclusion... Of morality from science to its logical end, we want to bring about the most good for the most people. We want to encourage people to survive, to live their lives, to pass on their genes, to bring the most welfare to others. But as much as science might lead us to a morality that says that that's what we should do to bring about the best good for the most people, it's problematic. Because as we seek to put that into practice, we're faced with some significant problems. And so the second issue is that relative morality does not work. If we're trying to bring about the most good for the most people, which I would say is probably a good thing to do, then who determines what good is in the first place? If each one of us have to decide for ourselves through evolution, through adaptions over time, as we face new challenges, perhaps looking to the past, but if there is no standard of right and wrong, then what is truly good? Because often what is good and beneficial to my survival is actually might make yours be more difficult. It might be a detriment to your own survival. As I take more resources, as I have power to decide what is good and what is correct, that means that you can't anymore. And the same thing is true for you. If you decide that some things are good and beneficial for you, it, it means that someone out there is suffering. So who determines what good is in the first place? Perhaps if we can jump over that hurdle, get over that challenge... We still desire to bring the best good to the most people, but if we do that, if we follow it to its logical conclusion and seek to put it into practice, we're forced to accept some really challenging and difficult conclusions. If you're a doctor in the medical field who sees one perfectly healthy person that can use their organs to save five other people... Then, under this model, the doctor should actually kill that person, harvest their organs, and save these five people, right? Because that brings about good to five people over one. Do we really want to say that killing an innocent person is okay if you can save people through their organs? Or perhaps you're a judge or sitting on a jury. And you've heard the claims, you've heard the defendant, and you've actually come to the conclusion that the person sitting in the guilty chair is actually innocent, that they've done no wrong. But by convicting this person, by declaring an innocent person guilty, you can stop violence. You can stop rioting. You can bring peace to the masses. Do we really want to say that it's okay to convict an innocent person if it helps bring peace to more than two people? And these instances are many. Those are just a few examples of the problems that arise when we try to root our morality in determining what is the most good for the most people. So I would say that relative morality, put into practice as good as it may seem as a theory, falls short. But the last challenge, the last problem, I think is way worse than either of the past two. In fact, I think it is a nail in the coffin for rooting morality purely from adaptions over time from naturalistic means. Because if each one of us decides what is good, then the alternative is also true, that each one of us also must decide what evil is. And so if evil is purely subjective, purely up up to our opinions and understanding of the world, then the conclusion is, is that nothing is evil. Nothing is evil. As much as we might feel otherwise, as much as our uh, views and opinions of the world might say that there is evil, the truth is, is that nothing is evil. But that's contrary to what we know in our hearts, in our souls, yes, even in our minds. We long to call things evil, to declare that there is objectively things that are wrong in the world. That there is evil. Rape should be objectively wrong. Spousal abuse or abuse in any other of its forms should be objectively wrong, but we're left to say that it's not. Slavery in its institution and in modern forms of a sex slavery that leads girls as young as seven or eight years old into sex trafficking, which is at its highest peak ever in the existence of the world right now, should be objectively wrong. We want to call it evil. Killing innocent children or non-combatants in a war situation who've done nothing wrong should be wrong. And the institution of Darwin's ideas put to a social scale on the masses by Hitler and Nazi Germany in the Holocaust, leading to the death of over 6 million Jews, and 5 million other people, including the Roma people, the, the sick, people in poverty, the diseased, the disabled, and homosexuals should be objectively wrong. I don't need to tell you that. You know it in your heart that the Holocaust was evil. That's not revolutionary. But what perhaps is, is that if we root our morality in adaptions over time, choosing together, rooting our morality in what we decide, in our subjectivity, then we can't truly declare that any of that is evil. And that's exactly the same conclusion that Hitler's own propaganda minister came to as well. He said this, Today, there seems to be only one absolute thing. Relativism. If morality truly is relative, if it's based on the environments that we are in, on the adaptions that have happened over time, and there is no set standard of absolute truth, of absolute morality, of right and wrong, then nothing is really evil. Is that a world that we want to live in? A couple times a week, I have the opportunity to help out in our preschool here at the church. Um, They meet throughout most of the week and uh, I'll come in and read to them sometimes for story time or help our teachers have breaks and so they can go to the bathroom, get a bite to eat or whatever. And that normally coincides with their recess time. So they're outside, they're playing, having a great time. If you've ever gotten the chance to watch children, it's Awesome. It's super interesting because they can turn a simple play set like the ones that we have in our backyard into a stage for a full rendition of the entire movie of Frozen. All for memory. And I'm sure it's going to happen with Frozen, too, because it's probably going to be as good as the other one. So not only do they have this imagination, which is pretty outstanding. But two and three year old children have an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong? They know that some things you should do and some things they shouldn't do. And sure, hopefully your, their parents have raised them up and started to teach them those things. But no child on the playground is doing moral calculations to determine what is right and what is wrong. If they feel that they have been wrong in some way, they will immediately run over and shout, Teacher! Alerting the authorities that their own moral compass has been wronged. There is no child out on the playground. Susie is not questioning the history and biology of her friend who immediately tagged her back when the rules had been clearly stated that there were no tag backs. Little Johnny is not questioning the biology or the history or the moral conclusion that his friend has come to when he gets hit. He's not saying, well, maybe that's right for him. No, he knows that that is wrong. And as silly and as maybe fundamental as that example is, I think it speaks to the innate desire that we have for right and for wrong. The longings we have for justice, for equality, for fairness. And science is starting to come to the same conclusion, in fact, Yale sociologist Paul Bloom has begun to do studies on children and even babies as young as three months old, as young as my own daughter, Lucy. And what he has seen as he's done studies with puppets, as when one puppet is friendly and encouraging and comforting to the other, the baby will start to smile. Their heartbeat will raise. They will be encouraged to Empathy. And when one puppet is violent to the other, the baby's expression will change. That even in a three-month-old, we see the indications of a moral compass, of a sense of right and wrong, of empathy and compassion. So he then has come to conclusion that morality cannot be adaptions over time, that it must be something more, perhaps even rooted in our genetic code. He writes this, that I think the strongest evidence that morality has a genetic component has to do with human universals, that every normal person has a sense of right and wrong, some appreciation of justice and fairness, and some gut feelings that are triggered by kindness and cruelty. So if science is beginning to tell us something that we already know, that we feel things are right and we feel things are wrong, where are we left with? Are we left with a world where we can declare that truly nothing is good and evil? Or can we begin to see that morality may be something much more? People in the community of philosophy, one of the philosophers from DePaul University, Eric Weisenberg had this to say, that he basically had come to the same conclusion that when he looked out in the world, he could no longer deny that morality had simply come about through subjectivity, through our desire to survive. But still seeking to deny the existence of God, he comes to conclusion that morality just is. That morality is a necessary truth of existence, like logic, like math. That morality simply has to exist for the world, for existence, for the universe to exist. Now is that a good conclusion? To simply declare that morality is? That we just have to accept that it is with really no evidence to point us there? I don't think so. I don't think we're left either with a world where morality simply exists or the problems and difficulties of a morality that rises through subjective choice. We have an alternative. And it's the same thing that the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, long before we studied evolution, before we looked at our neurology, before we began to just accept that morality is. The Bible roots morality in God. Paul, in the book of Romans, is basically arguing the same thing. He's presenting why the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish peoples, you and me, why they can actually be held to the same standard as the Jews who have the law, who have the written words of God, the Torah, why is it then that the Gentiles can be held to the same standard of morality as the Jews, despite not having the law? What to do? And he says this in the second chapter of Romans, verse 15. It says they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. That despite not having the written laws of God like the Jewish community did, that us Gentiles actually have something that on the surface might seem better. That we have the law of God actually written on our hearts. Written on our hearts, so much so that sometimes we can be defended by the good things that we do and other times we are accused by the bad things that we do. If the law of God is written on our hearts and God did not just create the world or design the world, but actually set up morality, he is the source of morality, then that explains a lot of things that we know to be true. It explains that we can actually call things good, the best things that we do, because they correspond to who God is, his character, his goodness his compassion, his mercy. We aren't left with a world of weird conclusions and trying to bring about the greatest good for the most people. We can just follow the act of God in the world and if we're ever confused about what we should do, then we look to God and who he is and how he has interacted in the world. Then we know what to do. And we can actually declare that some acts are objectively wrong and in fact are evil, so much as they are counter to who God is, counter to his goodness, counter to his perfection, counter to the way that God has interacted in the world and the God that is revealed in the Bible. There is actually evil in the world. And it also explains why three year, or excuse me, two- and three-year-olds and even three-month-olds have this innate sense of right and wrong and how each generation can come to a foundational level of right and wrong despite living in worlds that were dramatically different from the others. It's because the morality of God is ingrained within us, perhaps ingrained in our genetics, in the way that we were created, in our role as God's image bearers in society all the way back in Genesis that humans were made in the image of God. And if God is who he says he is, then we can actually declare that there is right and wrong. In fact, I would say it's the only way. Because there can only be right and wrong with God. We long, fundamentally, to have an objective understanding of what right and wrong is. It explains our desire for justice, for equality, for fairness. For wanting to praise the best good and condemn the worst evil, it's written on our heart, and that is only possible with God. We don't want to be left with a world of subjectivity and confusion. We don't want to say that morality just is—that it is an existence. I think it's best. I think it matches the evidence that we all know to be true to say that God. Not only is the creator and designer, but is the source of morality. Not distinct from him, not laid onto society because God says so, but flowing out of who he is, his goodness, his perfection, his mercy, his justice. And that is only possible with God. Right and wrong can only exist if there's God. And I hope that should change us, that should lead us to do what is right, that we can declare things that are wrong and we can improve as a society. But that also leads us to a pretty troubling conclusion. If there is right and wrong and they are rooted in how they correspond to God's character, then we can sometimes see, as Paul says, that we are defended in the good things that we do. But do you know what happens way more? That when we see the perfect, all knowing, loving, good character of God, we realize that we're wrong a lot. That we turn to evil. That we seek our own needs and selfishly pull from the world what we need and we want instead of giving altruistically the way God has given to us. We try to put ourselves in the driver's seat, to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. And in that, that leads us to a road of a lot of wrongdoing. Things that are counter to who God is. In the church, we call that sin. Things that are counter to who God is and the way that he works in the world. So as much as we might find comfort and encouragement and wanting to live in a world that actually has morality rooted in God, that also leads us to the conclusion that we are wrong but the amazing thing is the truly good thing is that god is not just the institutor of the world the designer and creator and the source of morality but that god has broken in to our world and that is what we celebrate at christmas that the fully god fully man baby born in a manger jesus christ Lived a perfect life, brought about good and healing and restoration to the people that he encountered, and in his perfection, deserved eternity with God. But he gave all of that up. He gave up his position, he gave up his power, he lived a perfect life, but he even gave his life and a death on a cross that he didn't deserve, that we deserved for the wrongdoing that we've done. And on that cross, Jesus took upon our sin, took upon the things that we have done counter to God, took upon the wrong in the world, and put it to death. And on the third day, God raised him up, conquering that sin, conquering death, and all we have to do is believe and accept the free gift of salvation. The free gift of salvation that allows us to be declared right, to be righteous despite all of our wrongdoing, despite the things that we've done counter to God. So God is not only the source of morality, the reason why there is right and wrong in the world, but God has given us a way to be declared righteous. And as the band comes forward, that's exactly the same conclusion that Paul comes to writing to the Galatian church. He says this, that when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law that he had instituted. That God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. When we're faced with the question of morality, none of us want to live in a world where there isn't absolute truth. We long for it. It's been written on our hearts, ingrained in who we are as God's creation. And that may lead us to a world where we have to declare that we've done wrong. But God, through the salvation found in Jesus Christ, can declare each one of us right. And that, truly is good news let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you not only are the creator and designer of the universe that you are the the lord over all creation the institutor of science and that we can look to you to find the truth from both of your books, the Bible and the book of science, God, we thank you that you not only are the source of morality, that there truly is right and wrong because of you as it flows from your character. But you also broke in and changed the world, made a way for us, us to be declared righteous, even though we've done so much wrong. I pray that that would change the way that we live in our interactions with other people, in the decisions that we make, that they would all flow from the righteousness that we can find in the gift of salvation. We thank you for that. We love you. Amen.